if you're at a certain level and you want to get to the next level, there's a reason you're not there. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the show. Glad you could join me. Got another great episode coming up today where I speak with an old colleague of mine about the power of joint ventures and partnerships to accelerate your property developing career. Before we get to that, I've got some big news to share. As you know, I've been working away for months on putting together an online program for people who are interested in learning about how to develop property. And it's finally ready to open up. I get so many emails from listeners who say that they are really keen to get started in developing, but don't know where to start or how to go about it. So in response, I've put this training together. It's a bit like looking over my shoulder as I go through a development project. We cover the importance of preparation and getting ready, finding the right team members at the right time, researching the market to ensure you're developing something the market wants. We go through finding a great development site and then running a great financial feasibility to see if it works. Of course, we talk about finance and funding. We cover the different types of funding that you're going to need through your project, including construction finance. We go through how to prepare a strong planning application so you can get a planning permit. And then moving into that pre-construction mode where if you have to sell off the plan, we cover that. Finding and selecting a builder. And then moving into construction and completion before you close out and get paid. So I clearly cover each stage of the development cycle. Now, I've had a few test pilots going through the training and giving me some feedback, and so far it's been really fantastic. So, now I'm ready to let more people in. If you're interested in learning how to develop property but have been holding off, well, now you have a good excuse to jump in, as the course is designed for you to consume at your own pace, in your own time, and in your own place, with lots of checklists and guides to keep you on track. Head over to www.propertydevelopertraining.com and check out the video I've put together explaining what's included in the course. I'm really happy with how it's come together and I'd love to see you on the inside. So, as a special launch offer, if you email me and let me know what your favourite episode of the show is, I'll give you a discount code to knock off a substantial amount from the course fee. So, email me, justin, at propertydeveloperpodcast.com And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Okay, before we get to my guest, here's a quick update on my current projects. So, practical completion is fast approaching on my project that's under construction. Most of the townhouses are basically completed. It's only the three at the front that are having internal fixings done. The next big task is getting the new driveway and crossovers done, which will be a pretty big job as there's about 70 to 80 metres of driveway to pour plus the three crossovers. On my other project, we are still waiting for council to endorse our town planning drawings, even though it's been more than six weeks since we submitted our application, but they still haven't finalised it, which is quite frustrating. Anyway, we are busy with all the pre-construction activities, like getting the finance finalised and readying for construction to get underway. The big news on that project is that I have finally signed a contract with a builder to deliver the construction, which is great as it's taken more than six months to finalise that but not without a couple of shocking price rises along the way, which anyone who's negotiating a building contract right now will probably be familiar with. Anyway, we are now speeding towards getting them on site and getting started. 
and I can't wait to see some heavy machinery on site moving earth. Okay, on to today's guest, an old colleague of mine, Zoltan Salides. I met Zoltan many years ago as he was doing his first three-unit development project, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And he's gone on to do numerous projects of varying sizes. What's interesting about Zoltan's story is how he partnered up with another developer that you know, John Marquez, who has featured a number of times on this show. And this is the story of why they decided to team up and what they have learned from it. We also discuss how they work to attract investors to help fund their projects and what you can learn from their experience. In this discussion, we cover why Zoltan entered into a business partnership to accelerate his property developing, the importance of formalising agreements, and some tips on attracting investors to fund your projects. Now, keep an ear out during this conversation for the reason why you shouldn't enter a joint venture, as I think it's a great point that Zoltan makes, and one that maybe isn't considered enough. So this is a great discussion about how partnerships can help take you to the next level. So, enjoy. Zoltan Salides from Arena Equity, welcome to the Property Developer Podcast. Hello, good to be here. Now that I think about it, it's funny that it's taken this long to get you on the show. Yeah, we've actually known each other for quite a number of years, um, ever since we both started developing. Uh, how long has it been? It's been more than 10 years. Yeah, it has been a little while. And sharp listeners uh, of the show will have recognised the name Arena Equity from the last guest on the show, John Marquez, who happens to be your business partner. That's right. Yep. We've been uh, working together for about seven years now. Uh, yeah, so we sort of got to know each other when we both started developing on our own. And yeah, one thing led to another. And yeah, we've been doing projects together for quite a number of years now. Yes, which is the why we're going to or what we're going to discuss today. Uh, we're going to talk about business partnerships and joint ventures. But just before we get to that, give us a little bit of a background about how you got started in property development and your your first project that you did on your own before partnering up with John? Yeah, so my background was in corporate IT um, and, you know, did the usual thing, went to school, went to uni, uh, got a job and just didn't really enjoy it. So I was always on the lookout for, um, well, I quickly realised that corporate life wasn't for me. I looked around and I sort of looked at other people and thought, well, other people are really enjoying this environment, but me, I just didn't feel like I fit in. So I was always looking around for other things to do. And at quite an early sort of age, property caught my eye. And that was partly due to the fact that my sister was working in a real estate agent at the time. And so she was telling me a bit about property and sort of found out a bit more and so I started my journey uh, buying just investment properties, buy and hold, rent them out. Uh, but I pre- that, that was using med- uh, negative gearing. But I pretty quickly realized that while it kind of worked, it took a very, very long time. So I was looking for a faster way to, uh, to grow my wealth uh, and hopefully be able to retire before I was an old man. So, <laughs> so that's why I sort of looked around and I looked at different options and yeah, somehow developing just, I just kept coming back to it. And 
Uh, yeah, and over the years, um, I found a couple of mentors and, yeah, back in 2011, I bought my first uh, development project and, yeah, that's where it all started. So tell us a bit about that first project. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't too much. It was just a three-townhouse site. Um, but I'll tell you what, I learned a hell of a lot doing that project. Um, I realised that no matter how many seminars I went to or how many courses that I did, there's nothing that, that substitutes uh, sort of on-the-job learning. Um, there, there are some things that you will never, ever learn unless you actually do it. And that, that was very much the case for me. I sort of, I sort of knew the process. I, I had the numbers, which kind of looked okay. I thought, well, there's still, still so much I don't know. It's like, should I, should I spend a bit more time just making sure I tick all the boxes off? But I quickly realized that uh, what was holding me back was it was just anxiety, really, just imagining all the things that could go wrong. And, yeah, I, I sort of realized that there, there's one answer to that, and that's to just sort of jump in and just do it. And, and that's what I did. And, uh, yeah, got through it in about two years. Um, made a small profit, a lot less than I expected, because, as I said, there was a lot of lessons on the way. Um and yeah, I kind of realized at the end of that, uh, at this time I was still working in IT full time. And so I was struggling a bit, uh, just trying to juggle my time to, uh, to do the developing on the side as well as work IT. So I was looking at different options to, um, to take things to the next level. So when you think back about your first project, what are the mm-hmm. one or two key lessons that you learned or that when you look back on it now, you, you think, yeah, I learned that on that project? Uh, two, two things. Know your end sales and know your construction cost. That's, uh, those are the two big numbers in any project. Uh, the land value when you buy the site, that's, you know, that at the start, but, you know, you could really go wrong with those other two big numbers. And, you know, the other numbers, they're, they're kind of, insignificant in a way because it might be a few thousand here a few thousand there if you get those wrong it's not going to kill the project but if you get the end sales wrong or you get the construction price wrong uh, that could really really put a dent in your profit so uh, doing as much as you can to really uh, firm up those numbers is what I would suggest and but there's always going to be a bit of uncertainty and that goes back to what I was talking about you know sometimes it's just the anxiety talking uh, but there, there's definitely things you can do, like getting to know builders, getting to know uh, real estate agents, getting to know the market yourself, uh, and just having an understanding that it's uh, like even a particular suburb can have different pockets, different streets that can be valued very differently. Uh, you know, taking a unit and putting an extra bathroom in there could change the value and increase your profit. Um, you know, the design of the units, the slope that you have, uh, the shape of the block, they can all impact the construction cost as well. So, I mean, these are partly things that we've learned through experience. Uh, but just just having an awareness that these things exist and talking to, to people who know those numbers, namely builders and agents, is a good place to start. Okay, so you did the first project and then at some point, point you and john decided to join forces talk to us mm. about how that came about yeah so 
both of us had actually just finished. I think I had just finished my first project and John was wrapping up his first one. So we were both out looking for sites. And this was around back in 2013 where the market had been flat for a while and it was starting to pick up again. So we were both out and we both happened to turn up to an auction and we said, oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm here to just check out how the auction goes. All right. So we started talking a bit and we, we discussed a bit where our prices were and we actually bumped into another developer that we knew at the auction there and we were all, all talking and we said, started asking each other, oh, what do you think this, this site's worth? And we all came up with roughly the same number, which was about 520, 530K to buy the land. And so I thought, all right, let's, maybe you should put a bid in. Right? Anyway, the bidding started at about 500. And I thought, oh, this is, this is pretty, pretty all right. We might have a chance. Then it went to 520, 540, kept jumping up. And that property ended up selling for 699,000. And at the end of that, we all just looked at each other. We were stunned. And we thought, that's basically our profit margin. So the, if we had bought this property at that price, there would have been no money in it. So what, what had happened is the market had started to move, move at that time. And a lot of the, the lower value properties had really jumped up in price, but the larger properties are still quite affordable. So um, yeah, after the auction, John and I started talking, we sort of discussed and we thought, well, you know what? It might be worth pooling our resources because uh, if we have more money, then we can take on a larger site. And also with the combined experience between us, both of us having done small sites, if we pull that experience, we could surely tackle a large site between the two of us. Um, and yeah, it turned out we were on the same page and we started talking some more. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's literally how our uh, partnership started. And so talk us through those next couple of steps where you, from a, an informal agreement on let's partner up to formalising it and, and what are the steps involved with doing that and what are the types of areas that you need to clear up before you enter into a formal partnership agreement? Yeah, so there's two, there's two main experts that you would need to talk to and that is an accountant and a solicitor. So the solicitors uh, will give you advice, um, assuming that they've got experience in doing uh, joint ventures uh, with, with their clients. Some, some may not, so you may need to find the solicitor who does. Um, but they, a good solicitor in this area will generally give you advice on things to watch out for, and they'll also prepare the legal agreement that you would use uh, for that partnership going forward. Uh, the accountant's job is really about the structuring and the structuring provides two things. One, it provides a tax-effective vehicle for doing developments, uh, but also provides um, asset protection and just make sure that everything uh, is, you know, sort of everything works together. And that's going to be, dependent very much on your situation. So an accountant might say, well, you two guys, based on what you've got and what your plans are, a company makes sense. In another situation, a trust might make more sense. Uh, if you have two developers who each have their own companies already, perhaps a partnership between those two companies makes more sense. So there's no 
right or wrong answer. It very, very much depends on person's individual situation. Uh, and that's why it's best to go to the experts and just tell them, look, this is what we're thinking. We've spoken about this. This is the idea of what we think we're going to do together. And based on that, the, the accountants uh, can come up with an appropriate structure. And then the solicitor can also come up with a, an appropriate um, agreement for that. Now, we did find that the solicitor's advice was a little different from the accountant's advice. So the accountant was all about saving tax. That's what that's basically what they're paid for. If you do things this way, you'll pay less tax. All right, that's easy. You go to a solicitor and they'll say, wow, you've got to protect yourselves legally. So this is a better structure. And so there's a bit of a, um, you may get different advice and you need to work out which is more appropriate for you. Uh, but I find that's happened to us multiple times where we've asked experts for advice. And there's usually an answer in between, which is, which is the right answer for you. Uh, but it's a matter of talking to those experts to find out, well, why do you recommend that particular structure, Mr. Lawyer? And why do you recommend that particular structure, Mr. Accountant? And from that, you can find out why they're making those recommendations and find out what the answer is for you. Just going back to the legal uh, advice, what were the sort of one or two couple of things that the legal advisor was bringing to your attention or making you aware of as being important points? Yeah, okay. So obviously, like I'm a big fan of having everything in writing. Um, I'm happy to talk about why that is the case later on. But um, the the solicitor, he basically said to us, he gave us a bunch of questions to say, uh, what is it that you guys want to achieve? Who's going to be responsible for what? So obviously, we had to have a discussion as to, okay, well, I'm going to do this stuff. John's going to do that stuff, and we write that down. Um, but the solicitor also starts to ask questions like, um, have you thought about what, ha- what happens if one of you want to exit the business? What happens if one of you dies? What happens if one of you gets a terminal illness and has six months to live? Have you thought about that? And we're like, uh, no, we, we definitely had not. So the lawyer started asking those hard questions, and he, he pointed out that a lot of um, a lot of joint ventures or partnerships fall apart because the two people go into the agreement with a lot of assumptions. And part of the lawyer's job is to kind of tease out answers to these questions and to get the the two people to to really discuss um, what is it that you really want and what happens in all these different situations. And he made an interesting point, which was to say that uh, he said, if if you've gone through these questions and discussed them, then there's a greater chance that JV will work out regardless of whether you have a legal agreement in place. Uh, so that I thought that was quite, uh, quite fascinating that, well, just the fact that we talk about these things puts the JV on a good foundation. And it does because... You know, I think the, the big issue is it's really assumptions that each party makes. And if you don't talk about them, then you're going to go into that agreement thinking, okay, well, we're going to do this. It's going to take this long. I'm going to make this much money. And then if it doesn't go to plan, what do you do? Once you're down the track, in some ways, it's like a, it's like a marriage. 
you know, once once you're you're in there, you're in there for a, a long time. <laughs> so hopefully for life, but you know, some some developments go longer than some marriages. So it's uh, yeah, it's not something that I think you can enter into lightly. Well, you can, but it's extremely risky. I think there's some developments that have led to the end of marriages too, Zoltan. <laughs> yes, I will not be surprised. Now, you mentioned working out the responsibilities that you were both going to undertake. How, yeah. how did that conversation go? How did you slice up who would do what? Yeah, so initially when we started, I was still working in my IT job. Um, at that time, I had gone to part-time four days a week, so I had one day to dedicate uh, to the developing side of things. And then I sort of said, well, it's not fair that John does all the work and I sit in my, you know, sit in my day job, earning a side in- in income there. So we, we sort of agreed it would make more sense if John did the stuff that he can follow up during the day, during weekdays. And then we met, met up that one day that I had off per week. We would meet up and do stuff we had to do together. And then the other stuff, which I could do after hours, after I got home or perhaps on the weekends, then I, I would do those tasks. So the initial task split was very much um, based on that initial situation. So John was chasing up consultants day to day. I took over the sort of like looking over the legal side of things, the finance side of things, because I just didn't really need, a lot of that stuff could be done via email. Uh, so it's all stuff that I could I could do after hours, and and then there were some things that we agreed on that we should do together, which was maybe meeting with consultants if we if we had that, or to to look at sites. And that's where that one day a week I had, uh, we would meet up and go out to look at sites and meet uh, with the consultants. So that was the original or the initial division of labour, so to speak. Uh, but having said that, we kind of did everything together at the start. And we, I've, I've spoken to other people who have done similar joint ventures. And, yeah, yeah, it seems quite common that when when two people like this start out, they both want to do everything together. And it's like, oh, this 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 email needs to be answered. How about, you know, let's write a response together. Um, or we need to decide what's what this layout's going to look like or what this, this image is going to look like. So we everything together and that's fine at the start because you're still kind of uh filling each other out to see what each person's strengths are um but as time went on we sort of realized okay well i'm better at these things john's better at these things and over time especially as we've picked up more projects and we have less time available uh we've kind of focused more on our areas of expertise and and, then, and there's less doing things together. It's more, well, I've done this. This is the result and we sort of move on. Yes. Well, actually, now that you've touched on projects, I'd like to get mm-hmm. you to give us a quick overview of what you and John have done together in your partnership because I think it gives a good example of the power of partnering up and how it can let you leverage your time and money. Mm. Yeah. So our, our first project together was a, well, actually, we weren't quite sure how many units it was going to be, but it was looking to be about 10 units, give or take. Um, but that actually did not go according to plan. <laughs> Completely out of the gates, everything just went, um, it started off well, but uh, 
we had a lot of issues on that site with the planning and we actually we initially had council support but then we got a lot of objections and we ended up going to vcat um we went to vcats uh been told by a town planner that we we're going to have a 90 percent chance of winning and we ended up losing so that was that was a real like a rude shock uh we kind of realized, oh, hang on, there's actually more things that can go wrong in this game. But we re- regrouped um, and we ended up selling that site, fortunately, for a slight profit because the market had gone up. And that then allowed us to put that capital into multiple projects. And it kind of, yeah, at that point, it's just like the floodgates opened. And since that point, we've done, um, I think, one, two, Three, probably three or four projects with you know sizes running from four up to twelve units. Um, we've sold a couple of plans and permits, um, and yeah, we've we're just finishing one now, and then we've got another three projects in the pipeline as we speak. Yeah, great. And if people are interested in finding out more about the project that failed at VCAT, you can listen to episode twelve, John explains how that all unfolded um and john's also been on the podcast a couple of times so episode two episode 12 and then on the recent one episode 81 so john shares a whole lot of insights into his projects or your projects um, Mm. some of the nuts and bolts of what's gone well and what hasn't so they're definitely worth listening to particularly the one about the failed vcat application but yeah you bounce back from there and so you've gone on to certainly do a lot more projects than you would have been able to do on your own, I would think. Absolutely, absolutely. And and part of that is the, like the ability to specialise in what we're good at. Like the two of us are good at, two, at very different things. And like if, if someone's considering going into a JV with someone else, um, I would suggest have a look at, that person's uh, skills and strengths, what are they good at? And then have a look at your own skills and strengths. What are you good at? Uh, what do you enjoy doing? What does the other person enjoy doing? And the less overlap there is in those things, the better. Because that means both of you will end up doing the stuff that you enjoy and the stuff that you're good at a lot more often. And the partnership will will just click a lot better. If, if you happen to go into... A JV with someone who's very similar to you, then what will end up happening is you'll just end up competing on the same things. It's like, I want to do this. No, I want to do this. No, I want to do this. Oh, okay, you do it. And then what about this thing that has to be done? I don't want to do it. You do it. No, you do it. So, so that's kind of, um, that's the, yeah, it, be careful who you go into a joint venture with. But if you pick the right person, then you can definitely make things a whole lot easier. And so did you do that with John? What is it? Do you write down these are the 10 key things that need to be done on a project? I like doing these, 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 no, and look, these. We did at the start, as I said, when we sat down at the start of the JV, we sort of thought about what, is it, what's, what are we good at? But we haven't really revisited that because we found it just clicks so well. Um, like I, I've noticed like if we go to, to meet our accountant and he starts talking to us really fast about tax. I'm like, all right, I'm all, all ears and I'm taking it all in. And and John just walks out of that with glazed eyes. And it's, it's just, yeah, but there's, there are other things like when it comes to construction, 
It's like I don't really, uh, I haven't got that background that John does, and he just he sees stuff that I can't see. So, but I'm okay with that. It's I think that's it's one of the it's those things that give the um, partnership a strength, and being able to know, okay, well that person's better at that, and and that's kind of evolved over the years. We've kind of noticed that okay, well I'm better at this, John's better at that, and when it comes to those particular tasks, one of us usually jumps on it. You mentioned yeah. that you like to get things in writing and there was a reason for that. Mm, mm. Yes. So I've had mentors tell me um, if you go into any sort of joint venture, go into, you know, make sure it's in writing. Um, and, you know, so, some of them have said, you know, hopefully if, if, the, if the partnership's a good one, you'll never need to refer to that contract and then you put it into a drawer and, it just stays there. Um, but, yeah, there's there's two things. The first one is a small one, which our solicitor said that, yeah, it's, it's to, cons- to consider all the sort of edge cases as to why, you know, what, what would happen in this case. So you might think maybe the best of intentions, but if one of you develops a terminal cancer and your doctor says you've got six months to live, and all your capital is tied up in the project and you're not going to see it for two years, but I'll tell you what, your priority is going to change very quickly at that point. So have, having that discussed up front um, and putting it into writing kind of forces you to go through the scenarios and you can't, you can't sort of avoid it. And some of these are difficult topics. I know, I know there's people who don't like to talk about what happens if I die. You know, some people are uncomfortable at that, about that. But um, I think you need to face those things if you're going to, serious about this but the other thing is um i do have cut i I have a sort of a side passion of psychology um you know it's part of i like to read a lot on the topic and um one of the yeah there's there's some research and there's a great book that i recommend to the listeners is called the the memory illusion by julia shaw it's a it's a pretty easy to read book it's not heavy or anything but um that book really opened my eye to the fact that our memory is not as reliable as we think it is. So I'm, I'm sure you've had the experience where, you know, something's happened, but you can't remember what it was or when it happened. And someone says, do you remember this happened? And you're like, no, I've completely forgotten about that. I mean, that happens to me all the time with my wife. She's like, do you remember we were in Europe? And I'm like, no, no. And she just gives me a funny look and then... <laughs> It's just like my, my oh, well. very good at pointing that out to me as well, Zoltan, for a <laughs> yes. whole range of things that uh, I apparently said I would do that I don't recall saying that I would. But <laughs> right. apparently, she has a far yeah, better yeah. memory than me. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that the fact that we forget things. But the other thing that uh, I learned from this book is that we might actually remember things that never happened. And that's a real, you know, you might have gone through an experience or you might have spoken to someone and you'd think, yeah, this is what we agreed on. This is what happened. I saw this and this, so-and-so said this, but it never happened. Uh, and that's, I think that's, and that's, that really, uh, I think when, when I read that, I think, oh, oh my God. So what's this mean for a joint venture? If it's not in writing, then you can't, re- you can't rely on your own memory basically, you know? So if you do something on a handshake and, you know, you, you verbally agreed, you go away, you start working together, and then 
six months later, something comes up and you have a disagreement, you might be convinced that what you agreed on is what you agreed on, what you think you did at least. But the thing is the other person might be convinced of the same thing, but you both might be wrong. Yeah, unless it's actually in writing and you can go back to it and what is it actually agreed on? It's like, oh, that's what we agreed on. Okay, well, we have to honor that now. But you can only do that if it's in writing. Uh, and has that come up at all or getting things down in writing has really helped keep things on a narrow, even keel for the both of you? Um, it hasn't been needed yet. <laughs> so... Um, but if, if it is, uh, as is, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of putting everything writing in emails so we can always go back to and refer to it later. Uh, but in, in terms of the, the partnership, it hasn't been. Um, but again, not, nothing's happened. I mean, we've had setbacks like losing at VCAT, but nothing has happened um, where one of us has sort of said, I've got to, I've got to leave this. I've got to you know, do something else now. But if that happens, then at least that agreement is there. And I think from memory, you two had agreed to a certain time frame for your partnership. Is that right? Initially? Um, initially, yeah. We, we sort of seven years or some period of time where you had agreed that you'd work together? Yeah, that we, we had. <laughs> we had. Um, but we both realised that was quite unrealistic. Uh, um, we... I think our initial plan was five to seven years based on the, the initial projects that we had both done individually. We sort of said, if we can repeat that, and then in a couple of years, we were doing three of these at a time, four of them at a time, and we sort of projected from there and said, well, in in five years, we can both retire. Uh, but that hasn't happened because the, the market's always shifting and what we thought we were going to get is not what we got. So, uh, and and yeah, things of you know, planning has become a lot more difficult in Victoria, as I'm sure a lot of other listeners out there uh, would agree. So those initial plans, while they were great because it gave us the direction to go, uh, that yeah, we've we've had to adapt along the way. Uh, but that particular plan, I'm not sure if we actually put that into we may have put that into agreement, but um, yeah, we've, we've both realised that it wasn't realistic, so. We've just, yeah, we just had to adapt and find another way forwards. I'm sure I spoke to someone on the show who said that these legal documents shouldn't be called agreements. They should be called disagreements because the only time you pull them out and look at them is when there is a disagreement. Well, that's right. It's, um, yeah, pretty much. I, I can see that um, being the case. And then you've also gone on to take on investors in your projects yes and i think yes that follows a is that a joint venture model that you use there or tell us a little bit more about how you then fund your projects yeah so when um i mentioned we've done projects up to 12 units um so a one a number of years back we were in a situation where we had an eight unit site under construction and we wanted to start a 12 unit site but we didn't have the, the capital to do it so we thought, well, we've been talking about getting investors on board for quite some time. And we thought, well, this is a chance to do it. So and we started again talking to our solicitor and accountant about different ways to do things and also to mentors. Um, and so, yeah, we started small initially. Um, 
by reaching out to family and friends and just to sort of see what interest there was because we we both had um, a couple of people who had mentioned they'd be interested in investing, but they were pretty close to us in terms of family and friends. Um, and we thought, well, that will kind of get us over the hump of doing this project. So I thought, well, let's let's do it. And we got that on board. And there was, there was quite a bit of um, work involved there, getting that legal agreement in place. Uh, but once we did and we signed it, they now acted as a template for future investors. So whenever someone said, oh, yeah, what are you doing? We'd be interested in investing. So, well, this is what we've got. This is what we've, you know, this is what we're paying our current investors. This is the agreement. Have a read through it if you're interested. Um, and we find that that's helped a lot in terms of getting other investors on board who, who we don't know that well. So um, I, think that's, I think that's a great way to start out for anyone who's looking at getting investors on board. There's probably people in your life who have a bit of money and who know you fairly well and who probably trust you quite a bit. So that's and it's a lot easier to to get them on board than to go to another investor that you know just a little bit and say, you know, and they'll look at you and say, "Who are you? What experience have you got?" Um, and I had this interesting uh, experience. So I've been talking to to people I know and. I was talking to one particular friend. Um, I kept dropping the hints. We're looking for investors, you know, because I'm not the person to to go out and say, hey, how much money you got in the bank? Come invest it with me. Um, I think that just comes off sounding as dodgy. So, but I, I still, one thing I've sort of learned over the years is to, I've got to still put myself out there. So when I was in discussions, I got more and more comfortable with just saying, oh yeah, this is what I do for a living and I develop and we have investors on board. Um, but when I was starting out, it was we had no investors, so I'd say, "Well, we're looking to get investors on board because we need to do this, 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 this project." And this one particular friend, like, there was no reaction to any of those comments, so I just figured, "Okay, he's probably not interested." But I was saying this to a lot of people at the time, so and some of them would sort of come back interested, but most, no, nothing. All right. And then one particular day, I caught up with his friend for a coffee, and we, you know. Uh, what's what's new with you? Said, oh yeah, we've got some investors on board. We're paying them this much in, this much interest. And he says, oh, why didn't you tell me? I would have invested with you. <laughs> but I realized at that point that getting your first investors on board is the hardest thing you can do. But once you get some investors on board, it's it's like it's like a social proof. It's like other people say, oh. People are investing with you. You must be all right. Okay, then I'll invest with you as well. So that enabled us to, to get the ball rolling. And since then, it's become a lot easier. When we need some cash for a short time, we've got investors we know, and we've noticed that they're a lot more receptive to investing with us. Uh, so it's kind of, that's how it started. But now we're at the point where, yeah, we've got some credibility. And yeah, so we have... Um, we have a couple, we've still got, I think, two or three investors who are with us long-term, and then we have other investors that kind of hop on and off as needed. Can you tell us a little bit about that first agreement, the first investor agreement? I mean, you don't need to give us the mm-hmm. absolute details, but was that a very long document? Is it one page, two page? What are the kind of key it's points that it covers? Two, two or three pages, really. Uh and then the schedule at the end, which just lists the amount, 
the amounts, the interest rate, the repayment details. Um, but yeah, again, it was done by our solicitor. Um, I don't know if I mentioned right that there's I like to have stuff in writing. <laughs> so, um, but but the main points that I, like our solicitor puts in there is um, what happens in the event of default, um, how much is being invested, you know, what are the repayment details. Um, there's actually not much to it. Like a JV agreement has that thing's like a book because it has to cover a lot of cases. But but for an investment, it's quite simple. The, the person's giving us money, we give them an interest return. That's pretty straight. You could put that in a, in a paragraph. That's pretty straightforward. And then there's a bunch of case uh, clauses in there around um, just legally defining what everything means and yeah, what happens in default. Yeah, I get a lot of queries from people who listen to the show about getting investors on board. So I know it's mm-hmm. something that's of interest to people. But as you say, I mean, in its essence, it's a pretty simple document. You give us mm-hmm. X amount, we pay you X amount, whatever that is, that whatever that number is, is completely negotiable uh, in yeah. terms of an interest rate and when it's paid, but you just get it down on paper. Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be overly complicated. No. And so with those investment agreements, is there usually a time period that you ask, a minimum time period that you ask people to commit their funds? Uh, we, we tend to, like we usually say about 12 months or might be a bit less because um, we, we usually time it to match up with our projects. So because John and I, is, we have a fair bit of capital of our own, and we, we've spoken a bit about uh, how to best structure the um, investors' money. And I guess some investors are very concerned about risk. Uh, in developing, there's a lot of risk, particularly about how long is a project going to go for, how much profit is it going to make. So we, we don't currently offer a profit share. We just offer a fixed interest return. So if, if it goes over, then you get more money. Um, but we also found a way to kind of reduce the risk in terms of the time frame as well. So what we do is we use our own capital to buy the sites and get the planning permits. And once the site's ready for construction, we didn't have a very good idea of how long it's going to be um, until the end of construction. And once the project is finished, it tends to uh, free up a lot of cash. So what you say to our investors is say, well, we need money for this particular project. Um, it's construction. We may have pre-sales in place, which further helps to um, address any concerns I have. And we'll say, and then we'll say, we'll pay it back at the end of construction. So they can see that, okay, well, it might be 12 months. That might slip, you know, it will take a month or two or three, depending how things go. Um, but that's a very different proposition Proposition from saying, oh, I've got this site here. I'm thinking of putting four units on there, five. I might have to push it to six. Then we might have, but if you push it to six, we might go to VCAT, which might take another 12 months. And then, and that, if someone's not really experienced in developing, that'll just send them running for the heels. So, so we've structured our things in a way where it's, it's very kind of straightforward and minimal risk to the investor. And we find that that helps to get a lot of investors on board. Fantastic. So if people are thinking of maybe forming a partnership or a, a joint venture, what's your top tip for them? 
Um, Think of it as a marriage. That's sad that's, for that's you. That's sad for you, Zoltan, <laughs> knowing John very well. But anyway, sorry, John. I, I'm, I, yeah, no, it's think of it as a long commitment. It's like if if you um, if it goes well, it can really uh, accelerate your investing. Um, if it if you if it goes poorly, then you know it could really cause you a lot of pain. Um, so it's. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I guess another way I, I put it is, um, if when I started out, I considered doing a JV because I didn't know much about um, developing. So I thought, if I can find someone else who knows this stuff, we can do it together, and you know, it'll be easy. Well, for a start, nothing's ever that easy. Uh, but I think the wrong reason to do it would be if if you if you're looking if you're looking for a um, a JV because you're afraid to do it on your own, then that's the wrong reason. I think in that case you need to go out there and do things on your own for a while to build up your confidence. And if you're confident that you could do it on your own, but you're just thinking, well, I'm good at this, and this other person's better at these other things and wow if we did something together we could do a lot more if it's if you look at the um what each of you bring to the uh agreement where it, it might just be one of you have more capital or funding available it might be a skill set it might be a personality where um you know you're very different in personality which has you know each person has different strengths from that so if those are the reasons that you're looking to do a JV, then that's that's a good foundation. Um, if it's trying to avoid that fear and and then trying to find someone to kind of team up with because you're afraid to do it on your own, then that's probably going to end poorly. Very good. And then what about a tip for a developing tip for developers maybe looking to take their business to the next level? Ooh, in any particular area? Uh, just your one key lesson mm. or key tip that you would give to someone who said, I really want to boost my business. I've seen you go from a three-unit site to doing multiple projects of various sizes. Mm. I want to do something similar. It's uh, okay, yeah, okay. Other people. Um is so mentors and networking with other developers. That's what I would say will help you. It's this is not a game that uh, is easy. It's not this is not yeah. So this is not a game that's easy to do alone because there's a lot. Any particular project has a very, you know, someone there's a very sort of vast set of skills to successfully deliver a project, and it's much easier to to have people who specialize in those different areas. So if you, the more people that you know, the easier it will be to overcome any hurdles. And I'll tell you what, there's, I mean, there's hurdles in managing a project, just, you know, taking it through planning and construction, but there's other hurdles as well. That's more on the business side of things, which, uh, which you know, involves things like your, your headspace, um, how, things, how, you've, how you're set up, the type of projects that you're doing and what's your actual 
desired outcome. It's all got a kind of, it's kind of like this big nebulous thing that if you're trying to work it on your own, it's like, I'll say good luck to you. But if you've got other people to talk to and sort of see how they, they do things and you can sort of trade ideas, then I think you're more likely to take things to the next level. Because if, if you're at a certain level and you want to get to the next level, there's a reason you're not there. And you probably can't see that reason. And trying to work it on your own, you probably never see it. But someone can probably say, oh, this is what you need to do. And then you know. But you only find that out from other people who are uh, sort of know what you're doing and can give you that advice. Yeah, I always think of it in terms of professional sports and having a mm. having a coach who can go, if you want to go from B grade to A grade, well, you need to start doing these things at training. Yeah. Work on yeah. these drills, do these kind of practice drills and keep doing them. That's and right. Then you'll get yeah. better and better and, and, and it, you can yeah. move from B grade to A grade. Yeah, and the young athlete who's doing that, they've got no idea why they're doing it. But the coach just says, you got to do this. And they're like, okay. But later on, they realize, ah, that's why. Yeah. But I think first you need to make the decision that you want to play at a different level. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, Zoltan. Always great to talk to you. Glad we finally got you on Likewise. the show. Yes, it's been long, too long. And if people want to find out more about you or get in touch with you, where should they head to? Yeah, uh, shoot me an email on Zoltan, that's Z-O-L-T-A-N, at arenaequity.com.au. Well, we know that that email should get directly to you. You obviously set up all the IT stuff for Arena Equity. That's right. Yes, I did with my (laughs) IT background, yes. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us today about partnerships and joint ventures. It's not a conversation we've had before on the show, so it's been really great to get your insights. And I wish you and John all the best with the upcoming projects and look forward to getting you back on in the future to talk about all the other projects that you've completed along the way and the other lessons that you've picked up. Yes, maybe in a few years' time. In a few years' time. All right, Zoltan, thanks for being on the show. See you later. All right. Thanks, Justin. Bye. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.